This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents novelist John Updike reading from his book, Pigeon Feathers, in a recording made in 1969. This excerpt from The Persistence of Desire shows the writer's sharp eye for detail and innovative use of simile. Penny Packer's office still smelled of linoleum. It was a clean, sad scent that seemed to list on the checkerboard floor in squares of alternating intensity. This pattern had given Clyde as a boy a funny, nervous feeling of intersection. And now he stood crisscrossed by a double sense of himself, his present identity extending down from Massachusetts to meet his disconsolate youth in Pennsylvania, projected upward from a distance of years. The enlarged, tinted photograph of a lake in the Canadian wilderness still covered one whole wall, and the walnut-stained chairs and benches continued their vague impersonation of the Shaker manner. The one new thing, set squarely on an orange end table, was a compact black clock constructed like a speedometer. It showed in Arabic numerals the present minute, 128, and coiled invisibly in its works the two infinities of past and future. Clyde was early. The waiting room was empty. He sat down on a chair opposite the clock. Already it was 1.29, and while he watched, the digit slipped again, another drop into the brimming void. He glanced around for the comfort of a clock with a face and gracious, gradual hands. A stopped grandfather matched the other imitation antiques. He opened a magazine and immediately read, Science reveals that the cells of the normal human body are replaced in toto every seven years. The top half of the Dutch door at the other end of the room opened and, framed in the square, Penny Packer's secretary turned the bright disk of her face towards him. Mr. Bain, she asked in a chiming voice, Dr. Pennypacker will be back from lunch in a minute. She vanished backwards into the maze of little rooms where Pennypacker, an eye, ear, nose, and throat man, had arranged his fabulous equipment. Through the bay window, Clyde could see traffic, gayer in color than he remembered, hustled down Grand Avenue. On the sidewalk, haltered girls identical in all but name with girls he had known strolled past, in twos and threes. Small-town perennials. They moved rather mournfully under their burdens of bloom. In the opposite direction, packs of the opposite sex carried baseball mitts. Clyde became so lonely watching his old street that when, with a sucking exclamation, the door from the vestibule opened, he looked up gratefully, certain that the person this being his hometown, would be a friend. When he saw who it was, though every cell in his body had been replaced since he had last seen her, his hands jerked in his lap and blood bounded against his skin. Clyde Bain, she pronounced, with a matronly and patronizing yet frightened finality, as if he were a child in these words, the moral of a story. Janet. He awkwardly rose from his chair and crouched, 
not so much in courtesy as to relieve the pressure on his heart. Whatever brings you back to these parts? She was taking the pose that she was just anyone who once knew him. He slumped back. I'm always coming back. It's just you've never been here. Well, I've... She seated herself on an orange bench and crossed her plump legs cockily. Been in Germany with my husband. He was in the Air Force. Yes. It startled her a little that he knew. And he's out now? Clyde had never met him, but having now seen Janet again, he felt he knew him well, a slight, literal fellow to judge from the shallowness of the marks he had left on her. He would wear eyebrow-style glasses, be a griper, have some not-quite-negotiable talent, like playing the clarinet or drawing political cartoons, and now be starting up a drab avenue of business, selling insurance, most likely. Poor Janet. Clyde felt. Except for the interval of himself, his splendid, perishable self, she would never see the light. Yet she had retained her beautiful calm, a sleepless tranquility marked by that pretty little blue puffiness below the eyes. And either she had grown slimmer or he had grown more tolerant of fat, her thick ankles and the general obstinacy of her flesh used to goad him into being cruel. Yes, her voice indicated that she had withdrawn. Perhaps some ugliness of their last parting had recurred to her. I was 4F. He was ashamed of this, and his confessing it, though she seemed unaware of the change, turned their talk inward. A peacetime slacker, he went on. What could be more ignoble? She was quiet a while, then asked, How many children do you have? Two, age three and one, a girl and a boy, very symmetrical. Do you, he blushed lightly, and brushed at his forehead to hide it, have any? No, we thought it wouldn't be fair until we were more fixed. Now the quiet moment was his to hold. She had matched him, failing for failing. She recrossed her legs, and in a quaint, strained way, smiled. I'm trying to remember, he admitted the last time we saw each other. I can't remember how we broke up. I can't either, she said. It happened so often. Clyde wondered if, with that sarcasm, she intended to fetch his eyes to the brink of tears of grief. Probably not. Premeditation had never been much of a weapon for her, though she had tried to learn it from him. He moved across the linoleum to sit on the bench beside her. I can't tell you, he said. How much... Of all the people in this town, you were the one I wanted to see. It was foolish, but he had prepared it to say, in case he ever saw her again. Why? This was more like her. Blunt, pucker-lipped curiosity. He had forgotten it. Well, hell, <clears throat> any number of reasons. I wanted to say something. What? Well, that if I hurt you... It was stupidity, because I was young. I've often wondered since if I did, because it seems now that you were the only person outside my family who ever actually liked me. Did I? If you think by doing nothing but asking monosyllabic questions you're making an effect, you're wrong. She averted her face, leaving in a sense only her body, the pale columnar breadth of arm, 
the freckled crescent of shoulder muscle under the cotton strap of her summer dress, with him. You're the one who's making effects. It was such a wan, senseless thing to say to defend herself. Clyde, virtually paralyzed by so heavy an injection of love, touched her arm icily. With the quickness that suggested she had foreseen this, she got up and went to the table by the bay window, where rows of overlapping magazines were laid. She bowed her head to their titles, the nape of her neck in shadow beneath a half-collapsed bun. She had always had trouble keeping her hair pinned. Clyde's face was burning. Is your husband working around here? He's looking for work. That she kept her back turned while saying this gave him hope. Mr. Bain? The petite secretary nurse, switching like a pendulum, led him back to the sanctums and motioned for him to sit in a high-hinged chair padded with black leather. Penny Packer's equipment had always made him nervous. Tons of it were marshaled through the rooms. A complex tree of tubes and lenses leaned over his left shoulder, and by his right elbow, a porcelain basin was cupped expectantly. An eye chart crisply stated gibberish. In time, Penny Packer himself appeared, a tall, stooped man with mottled cheekbones and an air of suppressed anger. Now, what's the trouble, Clyde? It's nothing. I mean, it's very little, Clyde began, laughing inappropriately. During his adolescence, he had developed a joking familiarity with his dentist and his regular doctor, but he had never become intimate with Pennypacker, who remained what he had seemed at first, and a loose administrator of expensive humiliations. In the third grade, he had made Clyde wear glasses. Later, he annually cleaned with a shrill push of hot water wax from Clyde's ears, and once had thrust two copper straws up Clyde's nostrils in a futile attempt to purge his sinuses. Clyde always felt unworthy of Pennypacker, thought himself a dirty conduit, balking the man's smooth onward flow. It's just that for over two months I've had this eyelid that twitters uh, and makes it difficult to think. Pennypacker drew little circles with a pencil-sized flashlight in front of Clyde's right eye. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanet. This is the Internet Multicasting Service. Harper Audio presents John Updike reading from his story, The Persistence of Desire, published as part of his book, Pigeon Feathers. Updike realistically describes the frustrations of ordinary, middle-class characters.
Unlike, say, the effects of Novocaine, the dilation of pupils is impalpable. The wallpaper he saw through the open door seemed as distinct as ever. He held his fingernails close to his nose and was unable to distinguish the cuticles. He got out of his chair, looked down the hall to where a white splinter of secretary showed, and quickly walked past a closed door to a half-closed one. He peeked in. Janet was sitting in a chair as upright as the one he had left. A two-pronged comb in her mouth, her back arched and her arms up, bundling her hair. As he slipped around the door, she plucked the comb from between her teeth and laughed at him. He saw in a little rimless mirror cocked above her head his own head, grimacing with stealth and grotesquely costumed in glasses like two chocolate coins, and appreciated her laughter, though it didn't fit with what he had prepared to say. He said it anyway. Janet, are you happy? She rose with a practical face and walked past him and clicked the door shut. As she stood facing it, listening for a reaction from outside, he gathered her hair in his hand and lifted it from the nape of her neck, which he had expected to find in shadow, but which was instead, to his distended eyes, bright as a candle. He clumsily put his lips to it. Don't you love your wife? she asked. Incredibly much, he murmured into the fine down of her neck. She moved off, leaving him leaning awkwardly, and in front of the mirror smoothed her must hair away from her ears. She sat down again, crossing her wrists in her lap. I just got told my eyelashes are going to fall out, Clyde said. Your pretty lashes, she said somberly. Why do you hate me? Shh, I don't hate you now. But you did once. No, I did not once. Clyde, what is this bother? What are you after? Son of a bitch, so I'm a bother. I knew it. You've just forgotten all the time I've been remembering. You're so damn dense. I come in here a bundle of pain to tell you I'm sorry, and I want you to be happy, and all I get is the back of your neck. Affected by what had happened to his eyes, his tongue had loosened, pouring out impressions. With culminating incoherence, he dropped to his knees beside her chair, wondering if the thump would bring Pennypacker. I must see you again, he blurted. Shh. I come back here, and the only person who was ever pleasant to me, I discover I maltreated so much she hates me. Clyde, she said, you didn't maltreat me. You were a good boy to me. Straightening up on his knees, he fumbled his fingers around the hem of the neck of her dress and tugged it and looked down into the blurred cavity between her breasts. He had a remembrance of her freckles vanishing like melted snow in the whiteness within her bathing suit. His clumsy glasses hit her cheek. She stabbed the back of his hand with the points of her comb, and he got to his feet, rearing high into a new, less sorrowful atmosphere. When? he asked, short of breath. No, she said. What's your married name? Clyde, I thought you were successful. I thought you had beautiful children. Aren't you happy? I am, I am, but the rest was so purely inspired, its utterance only grazed his lips. Happiness isn't everything. Footsteps ticked down the hall, toward their door, past it. Fear emptied his chest, yet with an excellent imitation of his old high school flippancy, he blew her a kiss 
waited, opened the door, and whirled through it. His hand had left the knob when the secretary emerging from the room where she should have been confronted him in the linoleum-smelling hall. Where could I get a drink of water? he asked plaintively, assuming the hunch and whine of a blind beggar. In truth, he had, without knowing it, become thirsty. Once a year I pass through your territory, Pennypacker intoned as he slipped a growing weight of lenses into the tin frame on Clyde's nose. He had returned to Clyde more relaxed and chatty now that all his little rooms were full. Clyde had tried to figure out from the pattern of noise if Janet had been dismissed. He believed she had. The thought made his eyelid twitter. He didn't even know her married name. Down the turnpike, Pennypacker droned on while his face flickered in and out of focus. Up the New Jersey Pike, over the George Washington Bridge, up the Merritt, then up Route 7 all the way to Lake Champlain to hunt the big bass. There's an experience for you to write an article about. I notice you have a new clock in your waiting room. That's a Christmas present from the Alton Optical Company. Can you read that line? H-L-F-Y-T, something that's either an S or an E, K, Pennypacker said without looking. The poor devil, he had all those letters memorized, all that gibberish. Abruptly, Clyde wanted to love him. The oculist altered one lens. Is it better this way or this way? At the end of the examination, Pennypacker said... Though the man's equipment was dusty, he gave you a good prescription. In your right eye, the axis of astigmatism has rotated several degrees, which is corrected in the lenses. If you have been experiencing a sense of strain, part of the reason, Clyde, is that these heavy frames are slipping down on your nose and giving you a prismatic effect. For a firm fit, you should have metal frames with adjustable nose pads. They leave such ugly dents on the sides of your nose. You should have them. Your bridge, you see, he tapped his own, is recessed. It takes a regular face to support unarticulated frames. Do you wear your glasses all the time? For the movies and reading, when I got them in the third grade, you told me that was all I needed them for. You should wear them all the time. Really? Even just for walking around? All the time, yes. You have middle-aged eyes. Pennypacker gave him a little plastic squeeze bottle of drops. That is for the fungus on your lids. Fungus? There's a brutal thought. Well, will it cure the tick? Pennypacker impatiently snapped. The tick is caused by muscular fatigue. Thus Clyde was dismissed into a tainted world where things evaded his focus. He went down the hall in his sunglasses and was told by the secretary that he would receive a bill. The waiting room was full now, mostly with downcast old men and myopic children gnawing at their mothers. From out of this crowd, a ripe young woman arose and came against his chest, and Clyde, included in the intimacy of the aroma her hair and skin gave off, felt weak and broad and grand, like a declining rose. Janet tucked a folded note into the pocket of his shirt and said conversationally, he's waiting outside in the car. 
the neutral, ominous he opened wide a conspiracy, Clyde instantly entered. He stayed behind a minute to give her time to get away. Ringed by the judging eyes of the young and old, he felt like an actor, snug behind the blinding protection of the footlights. He squinted prolongedly at the speedometer clock, which, like a letter delivered on the stage, in fact was blank. Then, smiling ironically toward both sides, he left the waiting room, coming into Penny Packer's entrance hall, a cubicle equipped with a stucco umbrella stand and a red rubber mat saying, in letters so large he could read them, Walk in. He had not expected to be unable to read her note. He held it at arm's length and slowly brought it towards his face, wiggling it in the light from outdoors. Though he did this several times, it didn't yield even the simplest word, just wet blue specks. Under the specks, however, in their intensity and disposition, he believed he could make out the handwriting, slanted, open, unoriginal, familiar to him from other notes received long ago. This glimpse, through the skin of the paper, of her plain self quickened and sweetened his desire more than touching her head. He tucked the note back into his shirt pocket, and its stiffness there made a shield for his heart. In this armor, he stepped into the familiar street, the maples, macadam, shadows, houses, cement, were to his violated eyes as brilliant as a scene remembered. He became a child again in this town, where life was a distant adventure, a rumor, an always imminent joy. This has been Harper Audio. Harper Collins is the copyright owner of this recording and has consented to a limited distribution of Harper Audio as an 8 kilohertz computer sound file on Internet Town Hall. It is a violation of United States and international copyright laws to copy these recordings in any other way. Harper Audio is a trademark of HarperCollins Publishers, Inc. To order a copy of this tape or to request a catalog of all Harper Audio spoken word cassettes, please call 1-800-C-HARPER or 717-941-1214 or send mail to harper at town.hall.org. This has been a production of the Internet Multicasting Service. Support for Harper Audio is provided by HarperCollins and by Sun Microsystems and O'Reilly and Associates. Network connectivity for the Internet Multicasting Service is provided by UUNet Technologies and MFS Datanets.